This is a podcast from Real Life Sango in Clarksville, Tennessee. Thank you for being a part of our online community. We would love for you to join us at 8.30 or 10 a.m. on Sunday morning at the City Forum. In the meantime, if you would like to share a prayer request, make a financial contribution, or take a step at Real Life, you can text MISSION to 97000. Now enjoy the podcast. One of the things that like was amazing to me coming to Real Life was just the generosity of uh, our folks. And that generosity allows us to do missions here in town and also to the ends of the earth. Uh, we actually have a team that literally landed in London just hours ago. And so uh, let's be praying for Alex and his team as they are starting a good work there uh, this week. So you, some of you may know this. I was actually supposed to preach this sermon on rest last week. And on Saturday, I got sick. And um, my wife said it as only she can. She goes, isn't it interesting that rather than God having you a, preach a sermon on rest, he actually made you rest. And I did for four days, sat in bed. So literally, I got to practice what we're about to preach this morning. Um, also, when it comes to rest, we can be praying as a church for Pastor Freddie T and Susan, who are spending some time away to rest and to recharge. And as we're going to see, that is super, super important. And it's a biblical principle that we're going to talk about uh, this morning. So if you don't know who I am, my name is Tim or Timmy. I know there's like a, a big war back and forth of what you're going to call me. I, I will answer to either one, I promise. And um, if you don't know anything about us, we, we've been in New Jersey for the last 17 and a half years planting ch- uh, churches about 30 miles south of Manhattan. And I don't know if you know this or not, there are a few cultural differences between New Jersey and Tennessee, a couple. Um, anybody from the Northeast here? Raise your hand. Okay, a, f- a couple, yeah. So uh, I'll just kind of give you a, an example of some of the differences. One of the things, when we first went up to New Jersey, I would go up to people and I would say, hey, like, what do you do? What is your job? And I realized very quickly that was the wrong question to ask because they would often have two, three, four jobs just to make their mortgage because that's how expensive it was to live up there. On top of that, I noticed that the parents, their kids, had stacked their schedules with so many extracurricular activities that it was literally just one thing after another there's this sort of rush in the Northeast. I mean, it's even, it's even in the food, right? Think about um, New York-style pizza is what? It's, it's a thin crust. It's not like that horrible uh, pizza casserole from Chicago, you know what I'm talking about? I know I just made like 30 enemies in here, so don't, don't hate, right? Think about it, though. Like, New York-style pizza, it's thin. What can you do with a thin slice of pizza? Fold it. That's right. You haven't lived until you folded a New York-style pizza. Now, think about this. Why do you fold it? Well, New Yorkers are in such a hurry that we don't have time to, like, you know, sit down over a meal and with a spoon and casserole like Chicago. Like, we have folded it up, and we're headed to the subway. We're headed to that next meeting. And this is sort of the culture. By the way, you think New Jersey and New York folks are rude, and, okay, there's, there's a little bit of that. Um, mainly, they just don't have time. It's like, man, if you look someone in the eyes, you might have to actually stop and talk to someone, right? Um, and as a result, one of the things that we began to talk about in New Jersey is this culture of exhaustion, a culture where 
you're never fully present in the moment because you're always on to the next thing. It's a culture of burnout, a culture of anxiousness that you carry with you wherever you go. It's this feeling that you are fragmented and distracted. But over the years, something happened because we would have these volunteer teams that would come up from uh, Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee, and they would hear us talk about a culture of exhaustion. They said, Tim, you keep describing this as if it's something that's just in the Northeast. And they said, I want you to know something. We feel it too. And after being here for only a few months, I, I can tell you, we live in a culture of exhaustion. It's not just the Northeast. We live in a way that we feel fractured and anxious. You feel this constant churning, this underlying tiredness, and what some folks are now calling languishing. And as a result, we have marriages and families that are on the brink because our schedules never slow down. We have children that are being modeled unhealthy patterns of exhaustion. We're overworked, we're distracted, and at the same time, we're spiritually malnourished. And then we go home and we are so exhausted, what do we do? We just, we just sit on the couch and we go to either social media or to food or drink or entertainment and it doesn't make us feel rested. And then by the time, if we do make it to church, we're so empty that you hear about maybe a service opportunity and instead of feeling like, oh cool, like I get the joy of serving in this way, Instead, it feels like duty, and it feels like obligation, and it feels like, honestly, like one more thing. See, one of our values here at Real Life is margin for mission, because we're going to show you that actually the, the Bible has something radically different. When I say radically different, I mean, if we practice this as a church, it would be so countercultural to what we have in our country right now. It's even built into the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. Verses 8 through 10 says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock. Still not sure how a cow practices Sabbath, but let's go with it. Or the sojourner who is within your gates. Now, this is real life, so let's keep it real. I don't know of any other commandment that we take as lightly as this commandment right here. And I get it. Some of you are like, yeah, yeah, New Testament, you know, we have freedom, you know, to do a different expression. Yes, I agree. We'll talk about that in a, in a bit. But I mean, just the spirit of this verse um, is just pretty bizarre, isn't it? Like we come to church on a Sunday morning and you say, hey, how was your week? And then we we take so much pride, we flash up, I'm busy, man. We, we put up our busy card, right? Like, I'm busy. Oh, yeah, you too. I'm busy too. How are you? How was your week? I'm busy. You're busy? We're all busy. And it's kind of a wink and a smile to how overworked and how busy our schedules have become. I mean, can you imagine if we did that with any other commandment? Hey, what was your week like today? That was great. I murdered two people. It was kind of fantastic. How about you? I didn't murder anybody, but I lied, and it was great. It was like a spot-on lie. Like, we... We don't do that with any other commandment, but when it comes to overwork, when it comes to not resting, we somehow wear this like it's a badge of honor. Like I'm just frazzled. I'm just going and going and going. We're going to look at a passage of scripture today on page one of the Bible, and I'm, I'm going to literally introduce a concept because there's no way we can get to the depths of this. I would encourage you 
If you want to do a deep dive on Sabbath, Jonathan Vincent is starting a summer study, I think, in a, like a week and a half on this very idea. Um, but we, we're going to see that on page one of the Bible, it is so central to the way that God created us in this rhythm of rest. And so uh, if you would read along with me, this is Genesis uh, chapter one. We're not going to read the entire chapter for the sake of time, uh, but we will read part of it and then part of chapter two as well. This is Hebrew poetry, and um, we're going to nerd out on some Hebrew poetry this morning. So read with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Now skip down to chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. All right, so like, you've probably heard this before, and we always think like, okay, this is where God created something out of nothing. And that is, that is definitely true. But I want you to see something. In, in Hebrew poetry, there's actually more going on than just that God did create something. And uh, there's a great podcast called The Bible Project. I would encourage you, if you want to do a deeper dive, has some fantastic stuff on this. But I want to show you, this is poetry that actually has a very defined structure. And so uh, if you look up here, you're going to see something with the way that these days are laid out. You have light, darkness on day one water and sky on day two, and land and sea on day three. Now, I want you to notice that in days one, two, and three, it doesn't say he created those. It actually says that he is separating light from darkness, water from sky, and land from sea. And then next slide, check it out. Look at number four. Sun, moon, and stars fills the light and the darkness. Look at number five. Fish and the birds fill the water in the sky. Look at day six. Animals and humans fill the land and the seas. And then seven at the bottom stands out from all of it. He rested. Okay, that's kind of cool, right? If you've never seen that before. There's a symmetry. Whenever you're reading the Bible and you see something that looks symmetrical like this, 
there's a word for it. It's called a chiasm. I told you we're going to nerd out a little bit. Chiasm. Here's what the rabbis would do. The rabbis would say, whenever you see a structure that mirrors itself like this, you should look to the center of the chiasm because that is what the author is trying to point you to. I'll show you an example on the next slide. You see there, those are two different ways that a chiasm works, A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A, or A, B, C, D, and A, B, C, D, all right? And so when you see this structure, what the rabbis will tell you is like, look to the middle. And sure enough, on page one of the Bible, you have one of these chiasms, and right there in the middle is this Hebrew word, Moad, which is, there it is, right there. The Hebrew word is Moad, which means festivals or appointed time. And what, they, what the rabbis notice is this is really interesting because this structure starts in verse 1 talking about time. In verse 7, it talks about time in regards to rest. And then the very middle word is about time. And so they said, what is going on here? And then they noticed something pretty amazing. They noticed that the number 7 is showing up everywhere throughout this poem and actually throughout all of Scripture but especially in, the, in page one and page two of the Bible, the number seven shows up everywhere. In fact, verse one of the Bible, guess how many Hebrew words it has? Seven. Verse two, guess how many Hebrew words it has? Fourteen. Two times seven. There are three key words in this entire poem, God, land, and skies. The word God is mentioned 35 times, five times seven the word land is mentioned 21 times, 3 times 7. The word skies is written 21 times, 3 times 7. On and on and on. And the word moad that I talked about for festivals or seasons, there are, wait for it, seven seasons, seven different feasts, from Pentecost to Tabernacles to the Day of Atonement and on and on. You see this seven over and over again. And so the rabbi said, like, what in the world is going on? Like, why is the number seven so important? And then you look at day seven and you see something. Look again at verses, uh, chapter two, verses two and three. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Do you notice anything different about the end of the seventh day than every other day? Think about it. It doesn't say, and there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. Every other day it says, there was evening and there was morning the second day, and there was evening and there was morning and it was the third day. But on seven, it's left open. And what the rabbis would say is, this is because it was God's invitation to enter seventh day rest. Now, what's the big deal about that? Like, why on page one of the Bible is rest and Sabbath so central and so key? Well, you have to ask the question, well, who were the original hearers of this? Who was hearing this message? And you might say, well, the Israelites. Well, of course they were. But like, what was the defining moment for the Israelites? It was the fact that they had been rescued from Egypt, from slavery. There's, I, I, I love the Hebrew text is so cool because... It doesn't say, it, the word doesn't say that they make bricks. It uses the terminology, they bricked bricks. The first time they bricked bricks, Tower of Babel. It says they bricked bricks trying to get the tower up to heaven. 
The second time they brick bricks, it was Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to the Israelites, you're going to brick bricks for my name. You're going to do it for my glory. And so if you're an Israelite and you're bricking bricks for Pharaoh, you need to understand something. Your life is simply about production. You are the number of bricks that you brick or the number of bricks that you don't. But if you stop bricking bricks, you're probably going to die. That was sort of the culture. Now picture this. The Israelites have been rescued, and they hear this creation story. They hear this poem, and now they're hearing that they, that they are not just what they produce. Sabbath for the Israelites was a reminder that they had been rescued. It was a declaration of freedom to say, you are not the bricks that you brick. You are who you are because I created you. You might say, well, Tim, like, what's, what's the revel, re- relevance of this today? Aren't you glad we don't live in a culture that says your identity is in what you produce, right? Can you imagine a culture that would say you have to look a certain way and be beautiful in order to be somebody? Can you imagine a culture that says, unless you make this amount of money, you're not anyone. Unless you have this big of a house, you are not somebody. Your identity means nothing. Or maybe even a religion that says work really hard and maybe one day you get to go to heaven. But what we see here is on page one of the Bible is God is saying to a people that he loves so dearly, you are not the bricks that you make. You are not a production value. Somebody needs to hear this this morning. Your identity is not in what you do. Maybe you've heard this. We're not not human doings. We are human beings. And God has invited you into the seventh day rest. You are created in the image of God and your worth is as a child of God imaged in our creator. And you are infinitely loved and cherished. And he says, I want you to enter my seventh day rest. You say, okay, Tim, is that, is that it? Like you're just saying one day out of seven, we should take a break. And I want to say, it's not less than that, but it's more than that. It's also a mindset. There's a pastor named Ray Vanderlaan that used to say, It is easy for God to get his people out of Egypt, but the story of scripture shows us that it is very hard to get Egypt out of his people. And I feel like that's the same thing is true in our culture of exhaustion, this American culture that we find ourselves in. Yeah, so maybe we don't have Egypt, but we have this culture of exhaustion that just oozes in our veins. And getting out of that that out of our hearts takes a lifelong struggle. And we settle for cheap substitutes with both work and with rest. Let me just talk about that for a second. Let's talk about the cheap alternatives. First, let's talk about work, right? Everyone's favorite topic. Let's talk about work. Work versus toil. I want you to notice something, that work is not actually a bad thing. In fact, work is also in the beginning of the Bible before the fall. So in other words, don't think like, yep, you know, Adam and Eve messed up. And then the fall happened and now we have to work. No, work was actually pre-fall. They were gardeners. And if you've not, uh, if you've gardened at all, you know it is work, right? It is really hard work. Look at Genesis 2.15. He says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. You see, there's something, and some of you know what I'm talking about. There's a work that when you do it, it just feels right. Like it just feels good. Uh, a guy named uh, Tim Mackey who does the Bible Project, I love how he says it. 
he says, this isn't just any kind of work. He's like, the best, kind of, the best way I can explain it is the work that happens when your kids go trick-or-treating and they start organizing all their candy. You know, they, they put the good stuff, like, you know, the Snickers, the Reese's, the Haribo Gold Gummy Bears, and they separate it out from, like, the circus peanuts, the hard butterscotch, um, the, the candy corn. Some of you need to repent, by the way. If that's you, like, nobody likes that stuff, all right? Um, you're creating work for our kids to separate the good stuff from the bad stuff. But I love that, right? It's an ordering, right? It makes us feel good, like, this goes to my dog, this goes to me, right? So that there's a goodness there. Um, or the other, the other thing that, like, I, I always feel like if you mow the lawn, do you know that feeling when there's, like, one strip left, right? Like, you know what I'm talking about? And it's like, I'm going to mow that. Like, and it just feels right. Um, one time in Atlanta, my wife, Robin, runs out, and there's, like, one or two strips left. She's like, oh, I want to I wanna do the last two. And I'm like, nope, nope, get, go back in. It's not for, not for you. <laughs> uh, that's work, man. When it feels right, if you're creative, like when the, when the juices are flowing and it's just like you're producing something good, maybe music or art, and it feels right. But we settle for a cheap substitute. Toil is what I call it, where you work and you work and you feel like you're just spinning your wheels. Or maybe that day, have you ever a day where like you have a task list and every single one of them just seems hard for some reason. It's like, oh, got to get to this one now. And it just, you get to the end of the day and you, it's like you're having trouble connecting your bricking of bricks to a greater purpose. And it just feels like you're spinning your wheels. Now that is part of the fall, right? That's the thorns and the thistles that make us feel like our work is just toil. But here, check this, the invitation for work is always to step back into the garden, what do you mean, Tim? What's the difference of work inside the garden and work outside of the garden? I think the work inside the garden is one that we are, um, it's kind of what Mason said in the testimony. Where he's like, it's not mine, it's his. Like, it's stewarding what God has given us for his glory. It's connected to a greater purpose, the mission that he has called us to. Work outside the garden is when we're working just to justify our existence. Man, I got to brick bricks. I got I to gotta get the raise. I got to do this for my kids. And it feels like toil because it's not what we were made to do. We were invited to work in the garden again, to step into good work. There's also a cheap alternative for rest. I call this like seventh day rest versus the crash. If you noticed at the end of every creation day account, it, at the very end, it starts, it, it doesn't start with, and there was morning and there was evening the first day. It doesn't start with morning and evening. It starts with there was evening and then there was morning the first day. And the rabbis used to say, pay attention to that because there's a big difference in resting from our work versus working out of our rest. And I feel like the way some of us do this is, we work and we work and we work and we go, do I, is there anything left in my tank? Yes, I'm going to keep going. Is there anything left in my tank? Yeah, there's a little bit more. I'm going to keep going. And then, and then we go and then eventually we just crash. And some of you know this. By the time you get to the crash, it's too late for a quick fix. It's not like you go, okay, I'm going to practice Sabbath this week and now all of a sudden I'm good to go again. It takes a while because, again, 
you're created in the image of God, and this rhythm of seven is baked into his creation. And when we violate that, we're going to crash and we're going to burn out. And it's not just any rest, right? Uh, some of you know what I'm talking about when you, when you get to the end of the day and you've worked and worked and worked and you just, you get on the couch and you have food and drink and you watch Netflix and your eyes are glazed over. I just want to ask you, like, at the end of that, are you like, man, I am refreshed. Let's go, let's go, you know, let's go on mission for God. Usually not. And again, there's a time for that sort of like just relaxing. Sabbath is different. The word Sabbath means to stop or to cease from. And the way we used to talk about it is um, four things that you can do on a Sabbath, and they're all fun. It's resting. It's worshiping. It's feasting. It's one of my favorites, right? Eat something you like on, on Sabbath. Play is the fourth one. Rest, worship, feast, and play. And I remember... And when we started a church in New Jersey, we said we're going to implement some of these rhythms into our life. And when we talked about this rhythm of like, hey, one day a week, we're going to rest, worship, feast, and play, folks were like, man, this is going to be great. Sign me up for that. That's going to be the easiest one. Can I tell you, this was probably the hardest rhythm to maintain. It was literally the opposite. It was the most difficult one to maintain. And here's the reason. It takes a lot of work to rest well. Right? Yes, I know what I said. It takes a lot of work to rest well. I'll give you an example. We lived next to a town called Highland Park, predominantly Jewish. And on Friday afternoon, the town would just come to life. People were like shopping. They were like mowing the lawn. They were getting out and doing all the stuff. Why were they doing that? They were getting ready for Sabbath, right? They had to work and they had to plan and they were incredibly intentional to make sure that they honored this commandment that we are going to rest one day out of seven. So here it is. When we neglect Sabbath principles in our life, we are basically saying we haven't been rescued. We're still living in bondage. Um, there is a, a Jewish midrash once, which is like a, an imaginative like retelling of a story. And they were talking about the exodus and um, as the sea is now being parted and the Israelites are walking through, a group of Israelites on the, are on the far side and they're praising and singing out to God worship for the miracle that he had given them. But in this Midrash, two of the Israelites are walking through and they're looking at the mud and, as they're slodging through. And, they, and one guy says to the other, says, you know what? This mud, it looks just like the mud pits that we just came from in Egypt. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? It's like we're in the same place that we were before. This, what kind of rescue is this? You see, their focus, while everyone else is focused on the miracle of re redemption and rescue, they're focused on the mud that reminded them of their past sins. And I want to tell you, when we overwork and neglect Sabbath rhythms in our life, we're acting like we haven't been rescued. We're rejecting the idea that we can find rest in God. Okay, Tim, but what about all the passages in the New Testament where um, Jesus would heal on the Sabbath and he seemed to subvert all, this, all the Sabbath principles? It's a great question. In Mark chapter 2, 27 and 28, Jesus says this, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. 
Check this out. Jesus doesn't say the Sabbath is for Jews. He doesn't say the Sabbath is for Christians. He says the Sabbath is for humanity. He has literally put this into his creation. It's baked into us as children that are created in the image of God. And when we violate this principle, we're going against our very imaging. And it's tricky, right? Because you can miss, by the way, a, a week of Sabbath and not really feel it. Have you noticed that? You can miss it and it's, it's not that bad. You, maybe you could even miss two or three weeks. But the problem is when the crash comes, it's too late. And now it's going to take some time to reorder your life around this rhythm that God has given us. And to be clear, Jesus does tear up the legalism and the rules of Sabbath and gives us incredible freedom. And he can do that because of verse 28 where he says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. He doesn't say that I'm the Lord that can change the Sabbath. He doesn't say I'm the Lord over the Sabbath. He says, I am the Lord of Sabbath. I am the Lord of rest. The deep soul rest that your body, that your heart is so craving for is found in Jesus, who literally is the Sabbath. He is our deep rest. Jesus says, I fulfill it. And every time that you take Sabbath rest and you honor God in that way, it's a reminder that you are not the things that you do. You are not the bricks that you brick. It is a reminder of whose you are and how you are loved by an infinite creator that has created you in his image and you are a child of God. Somebody needs to hear that this morning because you are working hard outside the garden, bricking bricks, trying to make a name for yourself, trying to be beautiful enough, trying to get the best grades you can. All that stuff is great, but it's toil if it's outside of the garden. You need to hear that when Jesus was on the cross and he cried, it is finished, he meant it. The work is done. And we get to rest in him. We get to abide with him. And then check this. What's beautiful is once we do that, when our heart comes from a place of resting and abiding in Christ, now we get to work really, really hard. We get to. And it's not toil. It's, it's something that is of eternal value. And I believe this. I believe as we go into the fall, as we prepare as a church to go into a fall, I believe that we're going to see a season in real life church that is going to just blow us away. But can you imagine what would happen if we do this out of this posture of rest, that we work out of our rest rather than resting out of our work, and we honor the rhythms that God has given us? That's my prayer for us as, as a church, is that we'll learn what it means to rest in Christ. Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful, what a beautiful word for us. As we confess that we have willingly just operated in a culture of exhaustion where our hearts are divided our minds are distracted. We never feel fully present. Father, we thank you that you're a God that comes and calls the weary, the heavy laden. And that your burden is easy. And God, you're a God of peace. And you want to put 
that peace, that shalom on anxious hearts this morning. Father, remind us of your love and grace and mercy because of Jesus on a cross. We pray, Father, that this week would be a week that we work hard, but we work from a posture of knowing that we're fully loved and fully accepted, that you are our identity. Father, we're excited about what comes next because you are doing a new thing. Speak to our hearts this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We trust that God is stirring something special in your heart today. We hope to see you on Sunday very soon. Keep it real. Keep it Jesus.